Hello and welcome back. I'm Jason Mitchell, and I'm your host for Opportunity Thrives, where we are committed to better supporting the needs of today's secondary students. Through interviews with students, teachers, administrators, technologists, and education influencers, we want to understand what's working in our schools today, what's not, and how we can impact positive and lasting change. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions on our show. Please click in the podcast notes to leave us a review, to provide your input, or just to send us questions. You can also reach out to us at info at opportunitythrives.com. On the show today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stepan Mekatarian. He's the Interim Director for Innovation, Instruction, Assessment, and Accountability at the Glendale Unified School District in Glendale, California. Stepan, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Well, let's get started. Stepan, would you mind sharing just a little bit more about your background and your path to becoming a leader within your district? Absolutely. So I started actually right out of college as a with a career in public accounting. But after a few years, I realized that it was public education that had given me the opportunities as an immigrant to achieve my goals. And so I decided to make a career transition and move into teaching. So I became a teacher and then eventually worked my way to being, becoming a school administrator. Ultimately, I studied blended learning and had a lot of passion about both blended learning and data and assessment accountability, specifically focusing on formative assessments to inform instruction. And that's how I ended up at Glendale Unified. So currently, I am the lead for their assessment and accountability division and also collaborate with the teaching and learning department on instruction as well. Wow, what an interesting path. It's funny how we all come to sort of find our passion, right? Absolutely. You never know how you're going to get there. (laughs) Nope, but I'm glad you're here. All right, perfect. So I'd love to understand just a little bit about students that you serve at Glendale Unified. Could you just talk a a little bit about the district and some of the the services and programs that you all have in place? Absolutely. So uh, Glendale Unified has about 26,000 students. I transitioned from Los Angeles Unified. And so to me, Glendale initially seemed like a small district. And I was surprised to find that 26,000 is actually large enough to make it the third largest district in Los Angeles area. And so we serve a very wide, very diverse population of students. We have 23% of our students are English learners, 6% are homeless, 52% are low socioeconomic status, and 9% are special ed. Several different languages are spoken by our students, with the predominant languages being Armenian, Korean, and Spanish. Glendale serves the largest Armenian population outside of Armenia, and that is one of the things that makes our district unique. Our district also has a very comprehensive world languages program. We offer multiple languages that students learn their core content in along with English. Some of the languages include Japanese, French, German, Italian, and there are several others as well. Wow, that's incredible. So given the disruption in education that happened in last spring, or that actually started in last spring, how did your district respond to emergency remote learning when everything closed? And since then, how have you pivoted to meet the learning needs of your students as the fall began this year? Just like everyone else, we were taken by surprise by the need to close all of our schools. First thing we did, we want to make sure we approach this from an equity lens. We wanted to make sure that all of our students have access to education that no one is left behind because of this transition. So we set up processes to make sure that every student had a device at home and hotspots as well. Fortunately, our district is blessed to have a lot of Chromebooks that we use on our campuses. And so a lot of those were sent home with students. We ordered a lot of hotspots because that's something that we 
didn't have enough of, and it didn't take very long for all of our students to have access. We also set up a kiosk in the downstairs in the district office to make sure that if any devices either didn't work or a computer went missing or anything like that at all, someone can come and grab another device to make sure that there was no disruption in learning. We also launched a training program to make sure that our teachers were equipped to lead uh, distance learning effectively. So the initial training in the spring focused on a, with a variety of instructional technology programs, such as Google Classroom, Flipgrid, and dozens of others, to make sure that they had the technical expertise in order to lead distance learning. A lot of training was also done around Zoom and Google Meets and Hangouts. We also developed a very comprehensive training program for instructional practice that was based on research. So it took a little bit of time to conduct research to inform that planning, and it was rolled out in full effect for preparation for summer school. And then finally, all when we returned in the fall, every teacher received this training. So we're talking about 1,500 teachers who received the training, and the focus of it was largely around student voice to make sure that there's opportunities for students to interact and collaborate, to receive small group instruction in addition to whole group learning, and of course, the different types of learning models that uh, teachers could incorporate in their distance learning practice. We also set up systems in which to make sure we're supporting students with their mental health and wellness and work closely with school sites to make sure that the students get that support as well. So it was a lot happening in a short amount of time, but we saw a consistent increase in the quality of our program as a result of the training and the technical support that we were providing. Things that a lot of technical issues that were very prevalent in the beginning started to fade over time. And while I wouldn't say that we have it all perfectly figured out now, we're certainly light years ahead of where we were when this first started. Right. It's interesting because your story arc sort of falls in line with a term that I heard a lot, which was Maslow's before Bloom's and really making sure that the students' needs were met before the focus was turned to academics, right? Absolutely. And just to that end, food services, things like that, we really made sure that none of those were, were you know, left behind during the transition. You know, We had a lot of systems set up to make sure that those basic needs were met so that students can have those basic needs met so that they can be prepared to learn every, every morning. So do you continue to adjust your plans as the fall has continued into winter and then eventually into our spring? Absolutely. So, you know, we don't presume that we got it perfect very right out of the gate. So we conduct quarterly surveys. These are stakeholder surveys that go out to students, to teachers, and to parents and guardians. We triangulate the, their responses. And if we see discrepancies in, the, in some of the responses, or if we see a particular area of need based on the survey results, we address it, we make adjustments, we iterate to make sure that the program is constantly evolving. Some of our schools have created alternate schedules that meet all of the safety guidelines and instructional guidelines. And so we, uh, we adapt in that way. That's something that we introduced shortly after the school year began was the idea of learning pods. And these are on-campus learning for students. The students come to campus in very small groups. They're in the same group every time, so they don't mix and match to make sure that we keep that we prioritize safety. And while the students are learning remote with online with the rest of their peers who are learning from home, this is for students who may not have a quiet space at home in order to learn. And it's been incredible to see just how safe it's been. We haven't had issues with in terms of safety with the pods. And the, our facilities team has been absolutely phenomenal with constantly making sure that everything is clean and disinfected. The signs are in place. Their temperatures are checked. Everything that the state expects in terms of guidelines, we've gone above and beyond. There have been multiple audits where they check safety and we've come out with flying colors every time. So it's been a very powerful addition to our program. And I think it just, again, goes to the idea of making sure that we're providing equitable access. And so for students who may not have the space they need in order to learn, the pods can serve that need. 
Another way we're evolving with the program is we're starting to look to see how subgroups of students who might have higher needs can come to campus as well in the smaller grades. One of our schools is piloting program like that very, very slowly, setting up a system with very few students at the very beginning to make sure that they can do that safely. And this is just one place where we can continue providing the supports, the ones that, especially for students who need a little bit of in-person support. And from that, we'll definitely take those lessons and expand them on a larger scale when it is safe to do so. Boy, that's fantastic. I especially see the need at the younger grades for that, you know, that closer connection and that more personal connection on there. Absolutely. So I'm going to tap into your background in accounting because I think one of the things that districts are struggling with this year is some of the goals that we're thinking about. Like, how do you set goals when there's no state test or there's no end of course or end of grade exams? It's different. And so how do you measure the success of your programs and think about it in terms of metrics? Absolutely. So again, my department is assessment and accountability. So it's the data department. And there's definitely a lack of data this time around. A lot of the data points that we're used to expecting are not available. A lot of the summative results that you know we carry over from the prior year to inform our plans aren't there. So we've done a, a more heavy shift toward formative assessments, which I think is wonderful. I believe very strongly in formative data to inform planning. And I think that is really helping us get real-time data that not, isn't necessarily from the prior year. So there are several different ways in which we gather this formative data. You know, We talk about common formative assessments with teachers. We do training specifically around how to gather and address formative data. We have the interim assessments from the state assessment system that provides really exceptional reports for formative results. So you can see instantly, shortly after an interim, the misconceptions on a particular concept for students, specific standards or topics that students might need additional support on. And then we've also developed our own formative data system uh, in the district that it helps us get uh, real-time data to other non-academic data points as well. So in California, we have the state dashboard, which is essentially the year-end report card. It has a color-based system that shows how districts and schools performed in a variety of metrics, such as discipline, attendance, college career readiness, graduate, and so on. And so instead of just waiting for to get those summative results at the end of the year, we have generated a system within our SIS that mimics that same exact approach with the colors and everything, except it provides real-time data. So someone can go into the system and see, you know, if the school year ended today, what would be the attended chronic absenteeism rate or the attendance for a particular school? And then you can see how different subgroups are performing, just as the state uh, dashboard provides. And you can click on the number and see who the actual students are. So instead of waiting at the very end of the year to just get the results and hope that they're good, you can check on it during the year, see who the students are, check in with them, see what, what supports they need in order to be successful. And so some of the non-academic formative data points come from there as well. So that's been very helpful for us. And we also have seen that longer assessments that are that are more high stakes over distance learning are, have not been as effective as they would as they may be traditionally. So that's been a, a great way for us to really think about how shorter, more more quick formal assessments that provide actionable data in small bites can actually be very effective for instruction. And that this distance learning experience sort of helped bring that idea to the surface, and is something that I think we're really benefiting from. Yeah, one of those disruptive changes that brought about some innovation, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're not happy that this happened, but it definitely has helped us start to ask a lot of questions that we really should explore. Well, Stepan and I were speaking before the interview, and we were talking about some of the things that he is really interested in, and one of them was travel. And so when we're talking about the pandemic, he mentioned that with the, with the lockdowns, he wasn't able to do that. 
And I asked him how he filled his time. And it seems like he really took on a passion project. And he took some of his background from his dissertation and some of his passion around education and teaching. And he wrote a book. So he had a very productive lockdown, much more productive than mine. So the book he wrote is called The Essential Blended Learning PD Planner, and it's where classroom practice meets distance learning. Essentially, it's a guide to teachers and organization leaders in the conversation on how instructional technology will impact the immediate future of education and our student success. And we're going to include a link to this in the show notes. So if you're interested, you can certainly click on that. But Stefan, what I really want to know is what spurred your decision to write this book and how do you apply these practices to support teaching and learning within your district? Oh, well, Jason, as I said early in the podcast, you know, we were not ready for the transition to distance learning. It was a surprise for all of us. However, the return, the, the, the transition back to the classroom is not going to be a surprise. We know it's coming. We don't know exactly when or exactly what it's going to look like. So as I was working on serving our students' current needs, I really started to think about what the near future would look like because we didn't want to be scrambling for that transition as well. And so as I was thinking through about what that might look like, you know, and speaking to colleagues doing some research, it seemed very clear that classroom when we return is not going to look exactly like the classroom when we first transition to distance learning. Our teachers, students, and parents and gardens have all picked up a lot of skills and have asked a lot of questions and thought about a lot of elements of instructional practice during distance learning that they're not going to simply throw out and just go right back to whatever the classroom looked like before. I think the classroom of the near future is going to be a combination of some elements from distance learning around instructional technology and some elements and best practices from the traditional classroom. And so this book is designed to go to lead both teachers and school leaders in a collaborative process to identifying what those best practices are in the two settings, bringing them together, and ultimately setting up a professional development plan to train teachers on how to combine the two to make the classroom of the, when we re- return as effective as possible using both instructional technology and traditional classroom practices. So while the book isn't necessarily fully applicable to the distance learning environment we're in right now, it's preparation for what's coming around corner in the coming months, hopefully. And in the meantime, we're using some of the blended learning ideas to develop a training program to prepare our teachers for that transition when it happens. So we have a program in which we have we train a one, a one teacher leader from each school site on blended learning, specifically using the SAMR model. SAMR is an acronym, stands for substitution, augmentation, modification, and redefinition. And it's basically the different levels at which you, someone uses instructional technology to enhance learning. And they get they go through Google certification as a process. They lead professional development now to prepare other teachers at their school site on some of this work. And so hopefully that will help prepare as many people as possible for what that transition looks like. And I'm hopeful that the book will help inform some of those plans on a larger scale once it comes out in March. Well, I mean, you were officially a practitioner of what's in the book, the strategies and tactics, and you've been able to implement them over the last couple of months. So what recommendations would you share with other districts when it comes to educator training and even the need to prepare teachers for the what's coming next? Well, first, I'd say don't assume that the initial plan you create is perfect. I mean, even the most experienced of districts or school leaders is still going to have a limited amount of exposure to this just because it's so new. So always be looking uh, at it with a growth mindset, thinking about how uh, you can adapt and listen to your stakeholders. They're the ones who are in it every day. And I think taking their experiences into account 
is critical. And I think what's, what's been very helpful for us in our conversations and, our, and the trainings that we've done is making sure that we have a focus on student voice. Because unlike a classroom setting where a student can turn over his or her shoulder and talk to someone else or you know raise a hand or talk to someone during break or lunch, now in distance learning, unless that time is very specifically allocated and that space is created for the students to have voice, they're not going to have it. And I don't just mean academic voice. A lot of the research showed that having giving students an opportunity just to connect and see how others are doing and see how their friends are doing, just having a social connection is also very critical. So make sure that in all your instructional designs for distance learning, there is opportunity for students to have an active voice and for the teacher to be an active listener uh, and observer, not just a presenter of information. I think that's a very critical piece. Very critical. And we hear discussions about that quite a bit. If it's okay, I'm going to lean into that topic a little bit more because thinking about student voice as an engagement strategy for students, what other types of engagement strategies are you employing with your students? And is it working? It, we're definitely seeing success, but you know, in engagement, we know we have heard some reports that some students are, are struggling uh, with distance learning. We've also heard the opposite, where we've had some students who are thriving in this environment more than they did in the traditional classroom. So, you know, we all know that certain students have different learning modalities; they learn in different ways. And so, one of the benefits of instructional technology is that it allows students to receive the information in multiple learning modalities and to be able to respond to it that way. They can record their answer. They can give audible responses. They can do, you know, visual representations of their responses. They can type it out. There's a lot of different things that they could do. So it really comes down to how effectively that instructional technology is used. I think some of the ways to keep students engaged is certainly to not have an extended lecture format where students are sitting and listening on Zoom for, you know, 45 minutes, an hour at a time. It should be in small doses, a little bit of whole group instruction, whether that be live or whether that be something recorded that they watch. Get them to small groups, get them to collaborate, get them to share, to deliver, to bounce ideas off of each other, and for them to each other to be active listeners, to share with others what they heard other students say, to build on each other's ideas and to ask those questions, and also to have social-emotional connections. We administer a social-emotional survey to every semester to get a sense of where our students are. We're very, very happy to see that our sense of belonging scores were very high, which is an area that I think a lot of people were concerned about over distance learning because we pictured it being more difficult to connect or to belong when you're physically distant, but that was not the case. But we did see that a lot of our students didn't score quite as high when they were answering the survey, answering questions on the survey about emotion regulation, about when they're in a bad mood, how they get out of it. So creating opportunities for students to have conversations about what they do when things are tough, how they get out of it with some exercises that students could potentially do, you know, that, that our mental health department provides could be helpful there. But unless that space is created, and unless students have those opportunities to actually engage and not just become listeners to, to a part of a lesson, I think we're going to see them be much more successful in distance learning. And even though distance learning might be a temporary setup for schools, we want to make sure they're maximizing their learning during this time, no matter how long it takes. So we minimize any learning loss to their growth until they return. That's just incredible. I think, I mean, it couldn't have been more timely to have a support structure in place like that. So excellent job on that. So I think of our podcast as kind of like a professional learning community, and this is your chance to take what you've learned and, and share it out. So what advice or best practices have you learned and you'd like to share from the experiences that you've had over the couple months? Definitely make instruction and learning the f focus. And what I mean by that is 
keep it very like in terms of the timing of classes, the logistics about getting access to technology. Make sure that all those logistical items are all taken care of. Students know when to show up. Those issues don't get in the way of instruction. That way you can focus on student learning. And then when I say student learning, not just academic learning, but learning in terms of just growing as a person during this time as well. It's not just, it doesn't stop once it's, our students continue to grow even during distance learning. And it's our job to make sure that they're growing in multiple facets, not just academics, and really give them an opportunity to do that. If the logistical, technical issues are out of the way, you'll be able to focus on those and constantly ask your students. A lot of our research show that ask students just informally how it's going, get their feedback. They're new to this just like we are. It's tough for all of us, and it's tough for them too. And it, you lose nothing by asking them what their experience is like. They'll give us insights. Students are immensely insightful. They know good instruction when they see it. They know when they're learning. And just asking them what that experience has been like over distance learning is going to be very helpful as well in terms of informing our next steps. And then stay open to innovation. I mean, now that technology is front and center, there are a lot of innovative ways in which we can advance learning and we just have to be open to them. We don't necessarily need to try to teach exactly as we did and try to replicate that as much as possible over technology. There could be different approaches to the way we teach, to the way we assess student understanding, and we just need to be open to those ideas and see if this experience, while it being very tough and unfortunate in many ways, it can have a very sizable silver lining that we can take away from it. Actually, my next two questions I was going to ask you, so what do you, just from your perspective, what do you think is going to stick in the next year when we sort of return to a newer normal? I think there's going to be more online collaboration. I think the world has gotten a lot smaller over this process. Well, we're able to connect with people outside of just our zip code as a result. I think that we're going to see greater parental involvement. Usually when we talk about the setting up you know, coffee with the principal or you know, meetings specifically targeted for parents, we have to find a specific time that's going to be most available to give parents who are working time to scramble to a district office or to a school for that presentation. Now they can literally open it up on their phone and over video conferencing. We've seen our parental involvement in that regard increase quite a bit. We've also been able to visit a lot more school sites remotely in a, in a single day than we would be able to. So we've been able to deliver more professional development. I think the fact that we have uh, recorded content for greater access is also going to increase. So if a student is absent, I think it's much more likely that the student will now be able to access that missed content because the teacher decided to record the lesson. Similar, same with technical support. We've shot a lot of videos on how-tos, you know, how to set up a Google Classroom or, or how to use Zoom with videos. And we've noticed that a lot of our teammates have, have been accessing them in order to sort of find the answer for what they're looking for a bit more quickly. And I think that's something that's definitely going to stay. And then I think we're going to see more increased uh, instructional technology used in the classroom and at higher SAMR levels. So very advanced use of that. I think a lot of people have become experts in a very short amount of time and are ready for the next step in terms of using instructional technology to enhance rigor and to enhance differentiation. And to that end, the last one I'll say is individualized differentiation. I think we see a lot more of that now. I think when you are an effective educator usually are differentiating by providing enrichment and intervention for your students. With technology, you can take that to the next level by differentiating at an individual level, by creating projects or creating interventions that cater to very specific student needs. And I think that aspect of it is going to really stick around. And I think that, just going back to what I said at the very beginning, is a huge piece of making sure that we provide equitable access to instruction for all students. 
It was interesting. I was going to ask if you saw any silver linings or, you know, like what were you optimistic about? But you just enumerated quite a few things about that. And that's that's fantastic. Is there anything else you would add to that? Or you're ready? Did you name them all? <laughs> I would just say it. We, we, no one was ready for this. We're certainly not happy it happened. It's the, this pandemic has been immensely challenging in terms of how it's impacted the economy. It's very sad in terms of the impact it's had on people's health and the loss of life. And we're certainly... And I can't think of any group that would be that would be happy when this happened. But I think it's always important for us to be optimistic for the future and find hope in what's next. And I think that there have been a lot of things we have learned in education as a result, you know, sudden transition to distance learning. So I think that there are many skills and resources that are going to move forward. They're going to be here to stay and they're going to really accelerate the way education evolves over time. So I think that I'm very excited about the future of education as a result. And I think the silver lining is we're going to see a lot of our students thrive, even those who maybe were struggling before we transitioned to distance learning. Well, that is most definitely a silver lining. And I would just want to thank you for your time today. And thank you for your just your commitment to students and teachers and professional development and education in general. It's been really fun to get to know you and learning some of the things that you guys are doing. Again, thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share and present. Educators are working hard all over the country, and we love to share and learn from each other. And I'm hopeful that the content we share today will benefit others. And we're always looking to others around us to see what we can learn and use that information to help our students as well. Well, fantastic. And if you'd like to learn more, there will be a link to his book in the show notes. And to close us out, I just say for our Opportunity Thrives listeners, thank you for your time today. And I would echo what Stefan just said. And thank you for your hard work and commitment. If you're enjoying our podcast, we would love it if you take just a minute of your time and share your feedback on our show. You can provide a review on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you're listening on. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions or comments at info at Thanks so much for tuning in today, and we will see you next time.